Okay, guys, here we go. You ready? You ready to climb the summit to another glorious peak in Isaiah? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 55. Oh, what a view we will enjoy. Um, And let me, uh, for those of you here at home, let me pull the PowerPoint up here. Okay, can you guys at home see that? Okay, great. All right, so where are we at in the book of Isaiah? We've seen last time the series of servant songs. You remember this? This is the building crescendo. We get introduced to the servant in chapter 42, and then we come to understand something of how his kingdom will come and he will restore all things in chapter 49. And then in chapter 50, the third of what they call the servant songs, we see the obedience of the servant. And though he is um, accused and tried, that he is nonetheless vindicated uh, as God's agent. And then in chapter 52 into chapter 53, the chapter that probably all of us know best, we hear of his suffering and his substitutionary death that bears the sins of many and redeems people. And uh, so as we, as we hear that, right, that, that's, that's the Mount Everest of the book of Isaiah. So we're, we're there, right? We're at the peak. We're looking over at the valley. We're, we're enjoying the view. We, we are excited to be there. And then what do we do? We saw this last time when we see that, that God has provided a way in his servant to do what none of the, the kings of Israel could do, that, that no hope is found in them. And so God says, I dispatch my servant to bring about um, the salvation of people and to redeem Israel and to restore all things. And uh, what do you do when you hear good news? I told you last time, you have a party. Right? You have a party. So there's singing, there's shouting. In chapter 54, we saw that last time. And in chapter 55, it's time to eat. This, now, you understand that eating as a, 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 a fellowship item is not a uniquely Baptist invention. Some of you may be wondering uh, about that. So, no, no. Feasting goes way, way back into the time of the Old Testament where, where special meals marked very specific events in Israel's history or holidays or or interventions of God that were worthy of celebration. And so that's what we see as we come to Isaiah 55 is not a celebration meal like, hey, everything's great, but what we see is the offer of a special meal. And uh, if, if you're willing to accept it, we're going to call this the gospel according to Isaiah. And I want you to see on the heels of Isaiah 53 that describes the mechanics of what the servant will do to redeem people through the offering of his own life in place of theirs. We say, okay, great, so what, right? Everybody is asking, so what? Why should I care about that? What difference does that make? And we see here in Isaiah 55 the the call, the the the, the Isaiah saying, in light of what you've just heard, what should you and I do? So let's look at these verses together. Isaiah 55, verse 1. My version says, ho! And I go, I know Walmart has Christmas items up, but what does that actually mean, right? Um, So this is actually the same word that we've seen used throughout the book of Isaiah for warnings, for admonishments, but here, it, it, it basically, what this word does 
is it is designed to get your attention. It's like, come on, hey, look right here. Hey, look, right, pay attention. Right? That's what Isaiah is doing. He's saying, I'm about to tell you something, and I need to see your eyes. I need to know you're not texting on your phone. Pay attention, because what I'm about to say is the issue. Okay, so ho, pay attention, look up, put down your phone. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. According to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know. And a nation which knows you not will run to you. Because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. How should they respond? Verse 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways declares the Lord For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Come to the banquet, Isaiah says. Let's let's look at these verses together. This is the mercy of the new covenant, or if you will, the gospel according to Isaiah. Notice, first of all, a free meal of mercy in light of what the servant has done, in light of failure after failure after failure after failure. Remember, in this time in Isaiah's ministry, he's looking ahead to the time of the exile. So God's people are in exile. They've been uh, taken to Babylon. The temple has been destroyed. Their, Their precious city of Jerusalem has been annihilated. And everybody is about as low in the hope department as they can be. And in the midst of that, God through Isaiah says, there's a meal. There's a satisfying meal of mercy that is made available to you. That you can come. Those of you that have no money, and, and you understand the analogy, right? You understand the metaphor. He's saying, come 
to what God offers as a free gift. This meal, the meal pictures God's salvation, God's intervention, God's gospel. And notice, you don't have to have money. You don't have to work for this. You don't have to earn it. You can come and enjoy this free meal completely as a gift of God's grace. Come eat, he says. Look back at the text. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, no problem, come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Jesus would say, almost a thousand years after this, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Same call, right? Same same call there. Without money, without cost. Verse 2, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Let's just stop right there for a minute. Um, what does that mean? You got to read through the metaphor. What's he saying through the metaphor? Okay. Misplaced hope. Have you ever pursued security? Happiness, satisfaction, hope, peace, contentment in something other than God, and it failed. Put your hand up. I'll put my hand up. You ever done that? How many of you struggled with that this week? Listen to Isaac. Listen to how re- this 3,000 years old. Listen to the relevancy. Why do you keep doing that? Isaiah says. Why do you buy things that... that oh, hang on a second here. We just got into somebody's kitchen. Okay, we're out of the kitchen now. Um, why do you keep putting your time and effort and hope and heart into things that will not bring you what they deceitfully promise. Isaiah says, I've got a better plan. God says, come, eat. It's a free meal of mercy. Don't have money, no problem. It's grace. Why do you keep going to the mud holes to satisfy your thirst when God provides clear, cool, water in his gospel that's the that's the point so look at your notes here it's it's the gospel of satisfaction and if you've never heard the gospel like this the gospel is not just god loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life the gospel is not you're a sinner in need of a savior those are parts of it those are elements of it but that's not what isaiah is focusing on He's saying the gospel is about finding satisfaction for your soul when everything else has failed. Remember remember the context. These are Israelites that tried everything, right? They thought we're going to find the right king. Nope, the king's failed us. We're going to make an alliance with Assyria. Well, that didn't work so well, did it? 
We're going we're gonna to go partner with some of the remaining... Remember, Assyria has taken over the whole area, right? And so they're going and saying, well, maybe there's these two little countries and we'll make an alliance with them and then we're going to overcome the superpower of Assyria. Yeah, how did that go? They've tried everything. They've tried, well, maybe our God isn't working. Uh, we'll start worshiping the gods of the pagan people around us. We'll intermarry with them. We'll sacrifice to their gods. We'll build altars on the high places. After all, you can't have enough insurance when it comes to divine things, right? We're not sure about our gods, so let's just worship all the gods. And you remember Paul, again, a, 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 a thousand years later, he's hanging around uh, the, the Greek philosophers, and he stumbles upon a statue that actually says to the unknown God. Because, again, you can never have all the help, enough help, right? And Isaiah says, when you've tried everything else and you've exhausted everything else and you're still discouraged and you're still hopeless and you still lack security and you still lack a rest in your heart, I've got good news. Come eat. Come to me. It's free. It's grace. I've done it. And as Jesus says, you will find rest for your souls. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Or the way Isaiah uses it here, look what he says. Come to the waters. Right? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear. Come to me. Listen that you may Live. See, it's a, it's a satisfying meal that is graciously free. That, that's the point. A satisfying meal of salvation, of freedom, of peace, of hope that is completely free. You say, how? How can God do this for free? Well, let's remember, it's free to you and me, but it cost his son everything, didn't it? That's Isaiah 53. His son came, his servant came and stood in the place. Jesus pays the cost so that it comes to us for free. And you know that. It's the holiday season, right? You know, you're, you're, we got Black Friday, whatever that is going to look like, and you're going to go shopping, and you're going to give presents, and, and you're going to do this, right? right? Uh, Jude, when, when, when you get a Christmas present, and you open it up, and you're like, oh, man, this is awesome, this is great. D- does your mom say, um, that'll be $25, then you can play with it? Is that what she does? No. Gifts are what? They're gifts, right? They're free. But who had to buy that gift to give it to you for free? Well, Jesus did ultimately, and maybe he used your mom or your dad who worked hard and went to Walmart and bought the thing, right? Jesus is always the right answer, right? Because everything does come from Jesus. You're absolutely right, Jesus. Or, uh, Jude, I love your theology, so, okay? But you understand, when something comes free to us, someone else did what? They paid for it. And that's why the free meal of Isaiah 55 is contingent upon the work of the servant in Isaiah 53. Right? It was Jesus. You're absolutely right, Jude. Okay? A satisfying meal that is graciously free. And notice, what's the response? L- listen to this. This is gospel language. Ready? Come. Buy. Eat. Listen. Delight. 
incline. And notice he doesn't just say that once. He says, eat a couple of times. He says, listen a couple of times. It's like, this is, this is what we need. This is the offer to come and to find this in the gospel. And then he challenges us. Why do we keep looking for hope in all the wrong places? You know the cliche. Foolishness is doing the same thing, the same way, expecting different results. And Isaiah says, don't do that. There's only one that can satisfy. There's only one that brings stability. There's only one that brings a hope and a happiness. Now look at this. What's he going to do? Incline your heart. This is verse 3. Come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. According to the faithful mercies shown to David. And we go, what on earth is that about? Now, I don't know what you're like. Are the covenants kind of fuzzy in your mind when you read them in the Bible? And you go, yeah, there was that one to Abraham. And then there's a new one. And then... I think Moses get does Moses get one? Is that if that's what you do, you're in the right place because we need to do a brief covenant, covenant overview here to understand what he's saying, okay? Because what Isaiah has just said is that there's this free meal of grace for all who want to come, and he says if you do that, I will make a new and everlasting covenant with you, okay? So. So that, that's very important. The, the mercy that brings satisfaction comes through God's everlasting covenant. Okay. Now, the, the everlasting covenant, as we'll see in a moment, is talked about in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. We're not going to turn there just yet. Look at your notes for a minute. Okay. Let's just do a brief covenant fly. But this, this is like you go to the air show and the fighter jet comes by. And he's not quite allowed to break the sound barrier, but, but he's going to get real, real close and you're going to see the the little condensation cloud thing around it, right, with the shockwave, and Roger can explain all that. I don't know what I'm talking about, okay? It, it, it's a real fast flyby here, okay? So the Abrahamic covenant, do you remember this? The covenant that God makes to Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, actually his name was Abram back then, I want you to leave your country and go to this unknown land, and I'm going to make a covenant. I'm going to make a promise with you, and that covenant, that promise offered several things. You can turn to Genesis 12 if you want, or you can just listen, okay? God told Abraham he would receive land, that he would be a great nation, that he would have a great name, that there would be many people that came from him, that he would bless those who blessed Abram and his family, he would curse those who who cursed Abram and his family, and in Abram and his family, all the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed, Is this sounding familiar? That's the Abrahamic covenant. And this is the key covenant that everything else in the Bible is built upon. So when Isaiah says to the people, remember, this land is yours. You just have to trust God and follow his commandments. This covenant, this promise is what ensured that the Israelites would enjoy that promised land. That was part of the provision of the covenant. You say, well, why didn't they get there? Because they didn't trust and obey. 
But these are the provisions of the covenant. Now I put a little star next to the last one. All the, all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abram's offspring. And uh, what is that? Well, Galatians 3.16 helps us understand what was that talking about. It's talking about the fact that from Abram's family, way, 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 way down the line, a descendant would come. And that descendant from Abram's family would somehow become a blessing, not just to the Israelites, but to all the families of the earth. And Galatians tells us that that individual, that, that seed, that offspring was none, un, none other than the servant of Isaiah and as we know him in the New Testament as Jesus himself. So Jesus is the one from the line of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. You say, okay, that's great, Keith. What, what does that have to do with Isaiah? Here's the thing. Israel showed over and over and over and over and over again, including what we've talked about in most of the book of Isaiah, that they would not trust God and they would not follow his promises. They struggled over and over again with, with sin and idolatry and divided allegiance. And so God says, and that's what the book of Isaiah is about, right? Turn back to me. Turn back to me. Turn back to me. How are they doing so far? Not so good. So God says, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a new covenant. And here's the thing you got to see. In order for the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled, it required God to make a new covenant to go with it. You see that? That's what, that's what Isaiah is saying and that's what the other prophets say. It will take the new covenant to bring Israel into a right relationship with God so that they can realize the benefits of the Abrahamic covenant. Because for thousands and thousands of years, the Israelites have proved they can't do this on their own, can they? They need God to change their hearts. They need God to work inside. And I do want you to, to look at this because it's so important. If you're in Isaiah, just turn the page, hold your place there. Just turn over to Jeremiah. We'll just look at, uh, yeah, look at Jeremiah um, uh, 17. Okay, the, the, or excuse me, not 17, 31. Uh, the references are right there for you in your notes if you want them for the new covenant. Isaiah 31, Ezekiel 36 is where we, Read about the new covenant, okay? And notice, this is not Isaiah saying this. This is Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. All the prophets are making this clear. Chapter 31, verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Chapter 31, verse 27. When I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, as I have watched over them to pluck them up, to break them down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster so I will watch over them to build and to plant. So we say, okay, after all this, there's hope coming, right? Look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Which covenant did they break? The one with Moses, right? The Mosaic covenant. That's what's being referenced here. The one that God made with him when they came out of Egypt. But this covenant, the new one, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my law within them 
and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall teach my people, and they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. That's the new covenant. See, it's going to take God doing a new promise, a new covenant, where he says, I'm going to do spiritual heart surgery. You've proved that you can't do this on your own. And so I'm going to work in your heart. I'm going to give you, and Ezekiel actually says even more explicitly, you can write this down, Ezekiel 36, 26, God says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God literally says, I'm going to give you a new heart. Not the organ in your body, but a new spiritual heart. That that new inner man, that real you. And that new heart, that that new spirit will cause you to walk in God's ways. God says, I'm going to change you from the inside out. And when God does that, guess what? Then you will walk in my ways. Then you will obey my laws. Then you will follow me. Then you will love and obey me. So do you see that this free offer of mercy, if you go back to Isaiah now, this free offer of mercy that we see in Isaiah 55 depends on this new covenant where God is going to do a a spiritual transformation in the inner man. Okay, so the mercy that brings satisfaction comes through God's everlasting covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, right, those promises depend on the new covenant if that makes sense. And then notice this. He mentions yet a third covenant. And this is where you, you got to stay with me, okay? He says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. We say, David? Why are we talking about David? Because the covenant given to David... Okay, let's review. You're confused. We have an Abrahamic covenant. We have a Mosaic covenant. We have a Davidic covenant. We have a new covenant. Got it? There's four of them here. What's the new covenant? That's where God gives them a new heart and a new spirit and causes them to walk in their ways. We call that regeneration. We call that salvation, right? In the Old Testament, that's the gospel in Old Testament language. The Abrahamic covenant, we just saw that. That's for the people of Israel. It's land. It's blessing. It's a great nation. It's the Messiah, the seed that comes, right? Uh, We talk about what's the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant, God said to David... I'm going to establish my throne, and if you will follow me, right, you'll always have a king on that throne. You'll always have a king uh, eternally. So why does he say here then, according to the faithful mercy shown to David? Here's what he's doing. You need to get this, okay? The covenant given to David promised that future king. You can read about that in 2 Samuel and Psalm 89. So listen to this. The mercy shown to David in the Davidic covenant connect the coming king to the promised new covenant. You say, I'm confused. I'm really confused. Okay, just, just look up for a second. I'm going to unconfuse you, okay? I know it was a long time ago. But way, way back in Isaiah chapter 9. Remember, uh, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. It almost sounds like Christmas time. Hey, it's right around the corner. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And then Isaiah tells us some of the titles 
of this, this coming ruler, this, this coming, well, he's actually a child, we find out in Isaiah 7, right? And his name will be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? And what, and you remember how it ends? There will be no end to peace or his government for on the throne of David, he will rule forever. Do you remember that? I know it was a long time ago. So Isaiah has always said the future servant, the future king, the future hope is going to come and sit on David's throne. And Isaiah now in chapter 55 pulls that together and says, you see, the servant, the coming king, the one that sits on the throne in line with what David was promised is the one, you ready, who's going to bring the new covenant. Does that make sense? Nod your head if you're really tracking with me, okay? If you're confused, we'll talk afterward because we've got to keep going here, okay? It's, it, it, it's, what, what Isaiah is doing is he's putting the last couple puzzle pieces together here for us. And that's where the promises to David, the promises to Abraham, and now this new covenant all come together. And Isaiah says, this is why you can have hope. Because this mercy and grace and forgiveness accomplished by the servant, that's Isaiah 53, is the one who will bring the new covenant and he will be the one to sit on David's throne. So it's in line with these mercies shown to David then that we see this coming king. And David then, because he was the one to receive the covenant, is the witness to the present day people. You say, how? Because the people in Isaiah's day get to see what David was promised. And so David, as the one who received that covenant, is a witness to what God says he will do in the future in the new covenant. Okay? Now, look at this. He says, verse 5, You will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you, because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. I don't know what that means. To be very honest with you, I, the best that I can understand is that that word nations usually refers to Gentiles. So I think what he's saying is the Gentile world as a whole who was outside of the covenant blessings of Israel, guess what? Because of this new covenant, these people that were not a part of Israel will benefit in some way from this new covenant as well. And that's what Isaiah has told us, right? Isaiah has told us there's going to be a day when Jerusalem is restored, when redemption comes, and people from every tribe, people and nation and tongue, and they're all going to come and worship this God. So what do we understand? The gospel is not just for Israelites. The gospel is for what? Everybody. Okay. Now, with all that in mind, look at what he says. He comes back to chapter 55 verse 6. So if all that's true, if God has made provision in his servant and in this new covenant, it's what David promised. If God has made provision so that all can come, all can receive this meal of mercy. Look at verse 6 then. Seek the Lord then while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Now, now what does that sound like? What's that? It sounds like salvation because it is. What has Isaiah just described for us here? 
repent and belief. Repent and believe. Where's Lee, right? We were just talking about this, right? The, the, the two essentials of the gospel, right? It's repentance and faith. Not two different things. They're two sides of the same coin. Do you see that here? Seek the Lord. Call upon him. What's that? That's faith. That's trust. What's this? Let the wicked forsake his way and let him return to the Lord. What's that? That's repentance. That, that, that's that, that word that literally means to turn around. To, to return or to turn. It's one of the Old Testament words that describe repentance. What do you do when you realize that you've tried every other thing? You've put your hope in every other place. You've been in some difficult circumstances and people have failed you and jobs have failed you and health has failed you. This world has failed you. Isaiah says, you can turn away from that and you can seek the Lord. And you can put your trust in him. And what will he do? Look what it says. He will have compassion. He will abundantly pardon. He will bring salvation, redemption, and that satisfaction that you will find in no other place but in the gospel of grace itself. Does that make sense? Do you see that? So what does he say? Stop. Stop. Satisfying yourself at the mud hole and come to the water. So let's let's catch up on your notes here, okay? So seek, call, forsake, return. Those are those are examples of faith and repentance, right? Trust, trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus, right? It sounds like a hymn. Seek, call, forsake, return. And he will have compassion. He will abundantly pardon. Now, now look at this. Look at what he says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Now, now here, here's, here's the question. What does he mean by that in context? We understand the general principle. God is smarter than we are. His thoughts are better than ours. We, we understand that. But he throws that in here. For a reason. So look back at your Bible and think with me. Why would God say right now that your thoughts are not my thoughts and my ways are not your ways? Basically, God says, I love you, but my ways and thoughts are better. Why would he do that? Right here. What do you think? Okay, because of what they chose to do in the past. You see that? Time after time after time after time, not just one generation, dozens of generations, thousands of years. And what has happened to the people of God? They still don't get it. Um, Honest question. How stubborn are you? Honest question. How stubborn are you? Pretty stubborn? Yeah, me too. Okay. Thanks for your honesty, Caleb. I appreciate that. Honest man back there. And here's what God says. Even though you don't deserve it, even though I have showed you time and time and time again that I love you and I'm here for you and I'm your God and I want your allegiance and I want your love and I want your trust 
and I want you to come to me for satisfaction and come to me for happiness and come for me for stability and peace, even though I've told you that over and over and over again, and you still turn to the mud pits instead of to me, I'll still take you back. I'll still pardon. I'll give you another chance. And can we just, can we just remind ourselves that God's patience, His kindness, His forbearance, His mercy, His grace are overwhelming, aren't they? We, and I don't, I don't know all of your stories. I know my story. I don't deserve God's grace and mercy. Because I've been rebellious, just like you. Even though I know the truth, I keep going to the mud holes for satisfaction. And God says, good news, if that's you, my offer of mercy remains. Why are his ways not like our ways? Why are his thoughts not like our thoughts? Because we would say a long time ago, enough! I give up. Not worth it, right? That person is hopeless. Never, ever, ever forget. There is nothing you have done. There is nothing another person has done that is beyond the mercy and grace of God to help them. When people say, as maybe you've heard them say, maybe you've said this, why would God love me? God would never forgive me. You don't know my story. You don't know what I've done. You, you, don't, you don't know. I can't believe that God would somehow take me back. Remember, His ways are higher than yours. And His thoughts are higher than ours. And His mercy and grace are always available to those who will turn and to trust, just like we're seeing here. And in that way, they're higher and better. Not only that, look at verse 10. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and make it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I send it. This is the effective word, isn't it? Isaiah is proclaiming the word. We are reading the word right now, this morning in this gym. We're reading the word of God. And what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah here is God's word is powerful. It is effective. It is life-changing. It always accomplishes what it will do. What, what it's intended to do. We say, well, what, what, what word are we talking about here? What word does God say will accomplish what it intends? What, what, what word is it? We, we could apply that to all of the word of God, and that's certainly true, but Isaiah has in mind something very specific. What is it? I know I'm making you think, I'm sorry. What is it? 
Yeah. He's saying, what I'm really saying in this new covenant, in redemption, in mercy, it will bring about its intended result. This is not hypothetical. This offer is real. This offer will really do in you and in me and in all who would call upon the name of the Lord what it intends here. God's word is not impotent. It's not, it's not I totally don't know the word I'm trying to think of right now. Um, God's word is effective, isn't it? It's powerful. Uh, it, it, it is not a um, it is not a word that is word only, but will bring about exactly what God intends for it to accomplish. And we know we know because of what elsewhere Scripture says that His word is able to bring about what it says. If God says to you, he will pardon, he will forgive, he will show mercy, then his word is able to do that. Whatever you've done, whatever you think, uh, somehow you're outside of the mercy of God, that God would never love you, that he would never forgive you, God says, my word will accomplish those things. And, And what is the word accomplishing? Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? It restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Doing what? Making wise the simple. Paul would tell Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, fully equipped for every good work. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says the word of God is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it goes inside of you to the the deepest depths of your inner person, to that that real you, that heart, that spirit, and it's able to divide as far as the division of both soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it is able to uncover even the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. Do not ever question the sharpness of the blade of the word of God to accomplish spiritual work. Do not ever question the power of the word to save even the chief of sinners, the Bible tells us. Do not ever question that as dark as this world gets and as bad as it looks and as frustrating as it is and as discouraging as it seems, that God will do exactly what he says he will do. That's the power of his word, to do that. It's powerful. Now, you ready? Watch this. Look at this, verse 10. Uh, where are we here? Uh, verse uh, uh, 12. You will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth in shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. And we say joy and peace are Israel's future. Verse 13. 
Right? You will go out with joy. You will be led forth in peace. The great outcome of the new covenant and the people of God that are saved and redeemed and forgiven and restored. But then we are like, okay, I get that. The people are happy. How are trees happy? I mean, that's what it says, right? Uh, uh, the, the mountains and the hills will break forth in, in shouts of joy. The trees will clap their hands. And what on earth does that mean? You know what it means? When all creation responds, what's about to happen? Romans 8 is our hint. The whole creation was subjected to futility because of sin. The whole of creation groans, waiting eagerly for what? The revealing of the sons of God. They're awaiting the redemption of all this thing. And when Isaiah says the mountains and the hills are singing and the trees are clapping their hands, we're supposed to go, you know what? Jesus is about to restore his creation. And in case you missed it, look at the next verse. Look at how this ends. This is great. The thorn bush, instead of the thorn bush, the cypress, instead of nettle, the myrtle. And we go, what are we supposed to think when thorns are replaced with vegetation? What's happening? Well, those thorns and those nettles are there as a product of what? The curse of sin. That's Genesis 3.18. So when the prophet says, the thorns are going away, the nettles are going away, the hills are singing, the mountains are singing, the trees are clapping, vegetation is coming, we know that Aslan is on the move. We know that the the winter of the Narnia Chronicles, the snow is melting. And winter is coming to a close because what Isaiah is saying is that King Jesus is close. He's coming to restore all things. He's coming to restore the creation and put it back, not just to the, the original perfect way that it was, to actually make it new, free of suffering, free of sin, with our great servant sitting on the throne of David. And that is why we have hope, right? So let's not be discouraged. Let's remember what's coming. And let's trust that God's word will do exactly what we've read it'll do. Just a little while. Right? Remember what the psalmist says? Just a little while. And he'll be here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these promises. We need them today. Help us to believe them and to act on them and to find joy and delight in knowing that you will do exactly what your word has said, and we need not fret. Lord, help us. Help us. We need your rest and peace in our heart today, and we need a focus to take this message that we just read, this new covenant, this gospel, and preach it to the world, because King Jesus is coming, and we need everyone to know and be prepared that they might turn from their sin and put their trust in him. Lord, thank you for the satisfaction that we can have in your gospel. In Jesus' name.